I'm sure we're all delighted and deeply honored to welcome tonight Dr. Bernard Amade, Professor of Civil Engineering at the University of Colorado Boulder, an elected member of the United States National Academy of Engineering. Dr. Amade and his professional and student Engineers Without Borders have partnered with disadvantaged communities to use appropriate technology for sustainable engineering projects to improve the quality of life in these distressed pockets of the world. What wonderful contributions he has made, is making, and will still make. Please join me in welcoming, and I choose this adjective with care, the extraordinary Dr. Amadei. I do not know I was extraordinary, but anyway. Thank you so much for inviting me to speak tonight. It's a great pleasure to be here. Um, my presentation is about the role of engineers in poverty reduction. And what I want to talk about uh, is not really about uh, equations or engineering. I don't want to bore you with that kind of stuff. We know how to do it. What I want to talk about more is the, um, the role of engineers and the role of all of us in, in, in addressing the needs of about 5 billion people on the planet five billion people whose job is really to try to stay alive by the end of the day. These are people who need water, sanitation, energy, shelter, all the things that you and I take for granted and they don't have, and they don't have it. So one message that I want to convey in my presentation today is that addressing the needs of, of those five billion people is no longer an option for us. It is an obligation. And, and I'm supposed to use this one. So it's going to crank up the volume there. Um, so it is, it, is, it is an obligation. It's no longer an option. And that applies to engineers, of course, because I'm going to approach the problem of poverty reduction from the engineering point of view. But also applies to any discipline, uh, any one of us. We have essentially our duty is really to make the world uh, a better place. The kind of engineering that I'm going to talk about um, is engineering, I call that engineering as a human face. It's not fancy type of engineering. It's not, you know, big dams and big tunnels and big everything and big bridges and big roads and all that stuff. It's really small-scale engineering that can really change the life of somebody at the grassroots level. And I will show you several examples of projects that we are doing or I'm doing also as part of Engineers Without Borders. And I will say a few words about uh, what Engineers Without Borders is. First, I want to let you know, I want to talk about how it all started it started from in a small village of Be in Belize um, in 2000. In 1997, um, my wife and I and the kids, we bought a house not too far from Boulder, and we needed some landscaping done. So I literally took the phone book at random, Yellow Pages, landscaping company, and I selected a landscaping company at random, pure random. You've got to be careful about random processes because they can change your life. And here's a good example. So three days later, three people from Belize came to our doorstep and they say, hey, um, we're here to help. And as they were working in the backyard, they were telling me about Belize. I had never heard of Belize. Belize is south of Mexico. They speak English. It used to be called British Honduras. And before that, it used to be part of Guatemala. And they told me about um, the problems with um, uh, education of poor Mayan young people. So they told me, hey, you are a teacher at the university, why don't you come and help? So yes, yes, I will do that. Well, two years went by, and December of 1999, I got an email from Angel, one of those three people, and he said, hey, 
I was in your backyard two years ago. Remember me? Now it's time to deliver your promise. Okay. Uh, I was on sabbatical that year and I decided, hey, that's, you know, I'm going to go to Belize. I'm, that's a cheap ticket. I'm going to fly to, to, um, to, uh, to, the, to Belmopan, um, to Belize City, rather, and, um, and, and, and visit Angel. So I spent about a week there, and all I did was to go from Mayan village to Mayan village and Mayan village, um, and I came across that little village that really changed my life. So in that village, 250 people living on less than $1 a day, uh, substandard conditions, no clean water. They were essentially drinking water from the river that is right there. Uh, people working essentially in, uh, in, in the fields. Uh, people could not afford any fuel. Um, the road was sometimes not passable and so on and so forth. I mean, traditional setup there. I was not aware of that kind of world at all. Not at all. I mean, for me, it was the first time I was discovering essentially that kind of problem, if you wish. Um, and then so, as I walked in that village, I came across that little girl here. Uh, her job, as I was told, was to carry water from the river located behind those houses to the village, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, all day long, do some other chores, and as a result, she could not go to school. So, there were about 20 other little girls our age um, in that village, and they told me, hey, your civil engineer come up with a solution so that that little girl can go to school. That's how it was presented to me. It was not in the form of a technology, come up with a nuclear power station or anything like that. Come up with, uh, it was a social problem. And so for me, it was never presented like that. Engineering had never been presented in that way, where through an engineering solution, I was able to change the life of somebody. And that for me, it was really an epiphany in many ways. So I thought about it and said, no problem, I'm going to give them a pump. You know, pumping water 120 feet from the river to the village is a piece of cake. Well, as I came back to Denver and I realized, well, where is the electric plug here? You know, <laughs> in the middle of the jungle, there's no plug. You know, I cannot. And also that community cannot afford fuel. As I told you before, most of them make less than $1 a day. There's about 1 billion people on the planet who make less than $1 a day, to give you an idea. So I had to scratch my head and say, how am I going to put it together? Talked to some old timers, some colleagues in the field of hydraulics, and they told me, well, can you find some energy there? What's your source of energy? Well, the sun, yeah, or the wind sometimes. Um, and, but I noticed that upstream of that, where that little girl is, um, there was a waterfall. Water was flowing all year long, seven to eight feet of water. And for us engineers, aha, I have potential energy have energy that has potential to do something. So that was my source of energy, and we designed a pump, which is nothing new, it's a 200-year-old technology called RAM pump. It was invented in England 200 years ago. Nobody had heard of it, obviously, because it was old technology. So I talked to the students, and, uh, and the students said, hey, do you know about a RAM pump? I say, I don't have a clue what a RAM pump is. So the students knew as much as the teacher, but the teacher knew as much as the students. It was a great time, and we decided to work on a pump. We read about the physics of the pump. We dismantled an existing one, and we, put, we built two prototypes. And a year later, we built the entire system. We Students raised $14,000, um, about 12 of them. We had a team of 12 people. We worked all year long for that project, and in May, of 2001, we went to the field and installed the system. So many things came out of that project. That was my first project, 
for me, it was an epiphany. I had never heard of this kind of engineering. I was doing big engineering, big dams, big tunnels, bigger the better. For us engineers, it's an ego trip. We need big engineering. And frankly, now I'm, there are some times when you need big engineering infrastructure, but there are other times where small infrastructure can really change the life of somebody like here. So I thought about it, so I say, hey, who does kind of engineering for the developing world? Nobody was doing that in the United States, so I started a program at the University of Colorado, and a program, I will say a few words about it in a few minutes, but the program now has got an endowment of $5 million, essentially, and um, we are cranking up, we have master's degree in it, and PhD degree in it, and so on and so forth. At the same time as we started that, um, the students came back with big smiles on their faces and say, hey, that's the kind of work we want to do. I say, well, no, 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 come on, you know. I mean, I have to publish or perish here um, <laughs> at the university. Don't bother me with more work. Okay, no, 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 no. They say, that's the kind of work. I say, why is it that it's the kind of work that you want to do? They say, it is meaningful. We want meaningful engineering. Not equations, not problems at the end of chapter 5, 5.1 to 5.10. We are tired of those. And I say, hey, I'm tired of grading them. So, it's a perfect match. We are going to work together on a new form of engineering education, hands-on, and integrate that education into the curriculum. So that's how Engineers Without Borders essentially was, was created. And I also realized that doing engineering at the middle of the jungle is not a piece of cake. You know, I mean, duct tape takes a different dimension when you are in the middle of the jungle. It's amazing what duct tape, what you can do with duct tape. <laughs> Even in the field of cooking, it's just amazing. Anyway, so it was an epiphany for me, a midlife awakening, you can call it that way, not a midlife crisis. Usually when people have a midlife crisis, men usually change job or change car or change wife. <laughs> I did not have that problem. My wife did not have that problem. But for me, I started this uh, program called Engineers Without Borders in the United States. And we have about 12,000 members now across the United States, uh, eight years later. So if you look at the big picture, so I started looking into what kind of world am I living in? You know, um, after all, uh, uh, um, my dad was a bricklayer, grandfather was a bricklayer, and so on. So I came from, from the bottom up. But, you know, the world in which we are here is pretty comfortable, right? I mean, we have today, we can drink the water there without getting sick. Roads are, you know, good, and we have electricity, which is not the case anywhere in the world. But what kind of world do we live in today uh, at the end of um, uh, in 20, uh, 2009? Well, we have about 6.7 billion people on the planet. It's growing fast. Uh, we're going to cross about, I think, 7 billion next year, um, which is about twice as much as the population when I was born in 1954. Gives you an idea, okay? Uh, 1.2 billion people do not have clean water. 2.4 billion people do not have sanitation or are at risk of malaria. 29,000 children die from uh, reasons that are purely preventable every day. And that translates into about 1,200 children per hour. So if my presentation tonight is half an hour, during that time, 600 children will have died for reasons that are purely, purely, purely preventable. That's something that it's hard to believe. Two billion people uh, do not have access to low-cost essential medicines. I'm talking about aspirin. Uh, I'm talking about uh, uh, antibiotics and so on. 
Okay. These are statistics from the United Nations that I got here and there. 1.2 billion people do not have good housing. 1.6 billion people do not have access to electricity. And I'm wondering some work in Afghanistan. We talk about reconstruction of Afghanistan, but how do you reconstruct a country when you have electricity every other day for three hours or every three days for five hours? I will show you some examples later on. The fact energy, the fact that we have energy is really unique. Even we even have more energy than we can use here. But many people on the planet do not even have one light bulb. And when you don't have one light bulb, you know, you go to bed at 6 p.m. when it's dark, you make babies because that's the only thing you do. Right? Kids don't go to school. There's no hygiene. Kids are born in the dark. There's no opportunity and so on and so forth. If I were to turn off the lights here right now and we had to do something, we are very limited. So having a little bit of energy can really change, can really change the world. I mean, here are some children that Pictures of children, it's, it's interesting to talk about statistics. I, I, like about, I like statistics, but there's nothing like seeing some essentially real people who are part of the statistics. People like you and me who have flesh, who have smiles, who have hopes, who have broken dreams, who cry, uh, who have health problems, who do not have clean water, who do not have electricity, and so on. And I, I want to emphasize this quote from J.F. Kennedy, if a free society cannot help the many who are poor, it cannot save the few who are rich. We have to take that extremely carefully. The stability of the world today in an age of globalization depends on the poorest of the poor. We need to empower them. Even though, it, 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 to me, it's a moral issue, if you don't think it is a moral issue, it is an issue of security. It's both. I was reading the other day, there's a, the World Bank wrote um, an interesting report in 2007, the World Development Report, on youth and development, a great report. I usually don't like World Bank reports because they put me to sleep. But that one is excellent. It talks about youth and development. And in youth and development, this one piece of statistics that struck my head there is that in North Africa and in the Middle East, by 2020, we can expect 100 million young people without a job between the age of 18 and 25. 100 million young people between the age of 18 and 25 without a job in that neck of the wood. Now, if you put 0.00001% of 100 million, that's quite a few too many who are likely to join Al-Qaeda or groups equivalent to Al-Qaeda. So how do we empower the youth? How do we empower the youth with, ways of cre with creative ways that are essentially healthy? Young people are creative by definition. If they are not creative, they are old. How do we empower them with non-traditional way. I'm talking about education here. Not PhDs, not masters, not BS degrees. I'm talking about vocational training. Grassroots education. Now we'll show you some examples, which is really cheap, by the way, compared to putting together someone with a PhD. Our world has too many PhDs. <laughs> the world is dying because of the PhDs. <laughs> Think about it. I mean, there's a league of morons out there. An international leagues of morons. I mean, there's a lot of members to that league of morons in the world. I'm not saying that all PhDs belong to that league. Don't get me wrong, because I'm not a, I'm not a lifetime member of it. And there's quite a few of them who do. Think about it very carefully. Half of the world's population today is below the age of 25. Half of the population in Afghanistan is below the age of 18. 
And that's about 14 million people out of a population of 28 million. We don't have a choice. We have to empower the youth with ways that are extremely creative and healthy. Healthy creativity, not negative creativity. Young people there are, you know, imagine if you're Al-Qaeda, you have a field day today of young people who do not have work. You promise them, essentially, you give them a sense of community. You give them clothes. You give them food. For boys, you give them a gun at the age of 14. That's pretty cool. Now think about it. Like if you were in their shoes. We need to counteract, essentially, that trend of more and more young people doing nothing with ways of empowering them in positive ways. And I'm repeating that over and over and over again because it is our obligation to do that. It's no longer an option. So another issue that you all know about it is population growth, and I'm sure that someone is going to ask and say, hey, you know, what about population growth? Well, population growth, we need to worry about it. There's no doubt about it. It's fully loaded, essentially, from a moral point of view, from a religious point of view, and so on. Many of those issues are geopolitical, religious, name it. They are extremely fully loaded. They are not black and white. They are not, you know, there's a big shade of gray there. There's an entire continuum. Two billion extra people within the next 20 years, 97% of that growth will be in a developing world. Not here. In fact, if you look at the statistics there, I don't know if you have seen statistics for the population of the United States, it's going to increase by 2050. I was reading it's around 450 million people, um, mostly um, Hispanic, uh, not, not, not white type of, of uh, essentially the minorities today will be a majority by that time. Completely different type of population. Um, Europe is decreasing in population. Russia is decreasing in population. In Italy, there are fewer Italians at the end of the year than at the beginning of the year. 97% of the population growth will be in the developing world. Huge demand, huge, huge demand for water, energy, waste, the stuff that we take for granted, education, telecommunication, so on and so forth. It's very important that we create more and more engineers. We don't have enough engineers. We'll talk in a few minutes about engineers without borders. And in many countries in the world, it's borders without engineers. Borders without doctors, borders without teachers, borders without nurses. How do you bring a country back together on its feet when you don't have essentially the know-how and the knowledge there to reconstruct the country? So not only do we have to worry about the youth, but we also have to create essentially, essentially a, 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 we have to create capacity, intellectual capacity, so that people can uh, essentially around the country. And we have a lot of failed states. I think there are 26 countries that are failed countries or failed states in the United States, in, in the world. Good example, I'm doing some work in West Bank. West Bank, population growth, 3%. Okay, if you do the math, the population of the West Bank will double in 10 years. Okay, ah, that's interesting. You want peace in the Middle East? How, how are you going to find Water for a population that is doubling in 10 years? How are you going to find energy for a population that is doubling in 10 years? And that population is surrounded by a big wall? Makes absolutely no sense whatsoever today to think about the Middle East without considering water, sanitation, energy, and so on and so forth. 
There's no way. You cannot have peace in the Middle East, even if the politicians say so. You cannot have peace in the Middle East, essentially because of the limited resources and the population growth in the West Bank. Either you are from Israel or Palestine, I don't care. In my opinion, if you are pro-Israel, you have got to be pro-Palestine. If you have to be pro-Palestine, you need to be pro-Israel. It has to be a package deal. It cannot be a separation. It doesn't make any sense from a resource point of view and from a water point of view and from an energy point of view. Period. I mean, so it's beyond politics there and something to, to consider very carefully. So the type of engineering that we essentially we do, here's some examples of essentially projects in which, in which uh, where we work. Look at, this is a community. This is an engineering project. In that community, which is a slum area in Nairobi, one million people live in that slum area. In downtown, not too far from downtown Nairobi. Except they don't, they don't exist. So if you talk to the mayor of Nairobi, the mayor will say, no, 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 those people don't exist. But they do exist. It's kind of phantom type of community. And believe me, if one million people in Nairobi are unhappy, the mayor of Nairobi will hear that they are unhappy very quickly. It's kind of interesting, that kind of hypocritical game that is being played with, with poverty around the world. We count it when we need it. We don't count it when we don't need it. But it's there. So in this case, people are born in that community, die in that community. They drink the water that comes from the ditch there and probably dispose the waste here and that water becomes drinking water for the next community. That's the kind of engineering that I'm talking about. This is not a fancy community. But this is a community, nevertheless, where there are some human beings like you and I who live in there, born in there, die in there, and we need essentially the, uh, we do not even have that basic dignity to stay alive there under humane conditions. Here's the world at night. You want to see what the problems are? Look at the world at night. Obviously, this is a compounded picture of the world at night because the world is never at night all at once, right? Just want to make sure. <laughs> okay? One student told me, hey, is that possible? I said, no, that's not possible. Okay, unless the sun goes blank for everybody. And that's the world at night, essentially, that shows, essentially, places in the world where it's in the darkness. Look at the Africa, the dark continent. It is dark physically. Look at how many, you know, pockets of light. You look at uh, uh, Egypt there. You can see that uh, small string of light up there. What's that? That's the Nile River. Right? Except for that string of light, you can see even around Egypt, there's not much light that is available. No light, no potential for economic development, no potential for education, no potential for health, no potential for you know, a bright future for the communities. Okay? Remember, light. And I'm not talking about huge amount of light. One can argue that the countries in the north there have too much light. And the countries in the south don't have any, enough light. Right? So one can argue about that. How many lights do we need in this room there um, to, um, so that we can see what we are talking about, right? We don't need that much light. But remember light, the meaning of light, right? Light is, it opens some opportunities. And in the case of Africa, you can see there, to me, I look at it as missed opportunities. Talent that is yet to be discovered, that is not discovered yet. There might be four or five Einsteins there in that entire continent of, of South Africa that can, could really come up with some revolutionary solutions to the world's problems, and yet those people are buried into the darkness there. It's really sad when we miss that potential. We're underusing the human potential. So one thing that you guys are, I put that because you are affiliated with the United Nations, 
the UN Millennium Development Goals. That's the roadmap. That's the map that the world has decided to follow essentially since 2000. Eight major goals essentially that essentially the UN is asking all countries to focus on. Frankly, there are some goals that are not, that are moving forward, and there are some more goals that are moving backward. Hunger. Hunger went up this year by 100 million people. There are more people at the end of 2009 who are suffering of hunger in the world than at the beginning of 2009. It has to do with the economic crisis that hit the poor people the most, essentially. Hunger is going up big time, and it's supposed to decrease there. Again, primary education, empowering women, child mortality, maternal health, HIV AIDS, environmental sustainability, and essentially business opportunities at the bottom. These are eight major goals, and you're going to hear more about those goals as we approach 2015, because ultimately 2015 is one of those big benchmarks there. So we all have to work in our own ways to make those goals a reality. I understand there's a here high school, right? Here. Uh, how many of you have heard of the UN Millennium Development Goals? Two? See? How come those goals have been on this planet for about now 10 years and very few people have heard about the UN Millennium Development Goals? There's a problem there. There's an issue of marketing, creating awareness, right? And these are major issues that we are talking about. Okay, so for me, my job is to create a new generation of engineers for the 21st century. And essentially, uh, I'm working on, as I mentioned earlier, I studied a new program at the University of Colorado where I'm creating, my job is to create intelligent engineers, which is, some people will say that's an oxymoron. <laughs> but it is possible. I want to show them, I want to prove them wrong because engineers are human beings. They are usually very good people. They mean very well. They excel at what they are doing, but they are not involved into politics. So some of the things that I'm doing uh, one project, we started uh, Engineers Without Borders, we started colleagues at, uh, in Israel studied Engineers Without Borders in Israel, colleagues in Palestine studied Engineers Without Borders Palestine, Egypt, and so on. Uh, so we have three major groups there, uh, Israel, Palestine, Jordan also. And so there's a collaboration going on right now, and I'm pushing that collaboration as best as I can. Uh, these are two people, and that's Adam from Israel, and that's Ameh from Palestine, trying to work together. I brought about 40 um, uh, engineers and non-engineers to Cyprus last April to see if we could come up with a common ground and essentially develop four joint projects there. I got a small grant. Um, someone gave me $82,000 that came out of nowhere. I don't know where that came from. To this day, I still don't know where that came from. And I say, hey, $82,000, I'm going to see if I can make this place a little bit better, especially in that neck of the woods. So we are working on one initiative called the Abraham Pass Initiative. The Abraham Pass, you all know about Abraham, right? I mean, it's a lead singer for you too, right? <laughs> um, uh, Abraham um, walked uh, all over the place. Um, that's what, um, uh, you know, uh, how do you call that? Uh, the people who, uh, mystic and, the mystics, that's what they do, you know, they, the prophets, that's what they do, they walk a lot. I mean, if you are a prophet, your job is to walk around, right? Well, Abraham did that. In fact, the path that he followed um, is about 1,200 kilometers long. Give you an idea. It goes all the way from Iraq. Some people, well, depending if you are 
um, Jewish, or if you're Arabic, they will say, oh, he's studying in Iraq. Some people say he's studying in Turkey. But he came down, essentially, all the way down, and he's buried in, um, um, in, uh, in Hebron in West Bank. But anyways, the folks at, uh, at Harvard essentially decided to put together this path. And so, um, and next year, we are going to walk the path. A bunch of engineers from Israel, Palestine, and Egypt, and Jordan will walk the path, and along that path, we will, um, our goal is to bring water, sanitation, energy, a little bit of shelter to the local community. So it's a good way for communities that have, um, that have in their DNA the fact that they don't have to like each other for whatever reason, which is complete nonsense. When I brought those 40 people in Cyprus, I mean, it was like kumbaya. It was great for three days. All the, I mean, all those young people said, let's do this, and let's do that, and let's do that. And as soon as I went back home, poof, everything fell down. It's kind of, there must be something in the air, something in the water over there. But remember, Middle East, water is without borders. Pollution is without borders. Energy is without borders. Nonsense and stupidity is also without borders. There, I can tell you that. Political nonsense. There are things that I've seen over there in the Middle East that I don't want to talk about that really, really are really talking about human rights. Huge violation of human rights that are not reported. Huge violation of women on both sides. So I mentioned to you that it's kind of the, for us engineers, we are really good at doing math and all that stuff, but we are not really good at politics. Here's uh, from The Economist, April 16, 2009. Most common profession for politicians worldwide. Guess what's the most common profession? <laughs> Lawyers. Engineers are the bottom, you can say. Engineers are the bottom of the food chain. You know, I mean, we, nobody knows that engineers even exist, okay, for all practical purposes. It's kind of their, their own fault because they never advertise themselves. Now, I compare it by country, it's very interesting. I want to point out China. You see a large part of engineers here. Now, compare that to the United States, that's replaced by lawyers. In fact, the engineers are only this. If you look at China, Taiwan, many countries in Asia, Essentially, uh, South Korea, you can see that engineers have a role to play, not much, but uh, USA, it's terrible. So engineers don't get involved in internationally international politics or in diplomacy whatsoever. And there's some very strong effort at the State Department that I know of where uh, people are trying to push more and more engineers into international diplomacy. So this is the center that we are doing at the University of Colorado. It's called the Mortensen Center in Engineering for Developing Communities. Uh, Mortensen is Mort Mortensen, uh, Mortensen Construction Company, um, and essentially gave us $5 million uh, this year to uh, develop a full-fledged program um, at the University of Colorado. Our program essentially addresses five areas, engineering technology, public health, public policy and governance, business economics, and, and security. Uh, here's a diagram that um, I... Uh, presented last week at the U.S. Air Force Academy. I've been working with uh, uh, colleagues at the U.S. Air Force Academy to look at the relationship between uh, civilian forces and military forces. Um, this, is, uh, this diagram is a little bit complex, but it's taken from a new field manual uh, for the um, Army and, uh, and Marines. Uh, it's 2007. A counterinsurgency field manual. I read the first five chapters because after that it gets too much into the military. But it's really, it calls for an integrated approach uh, between civilian operations and military operations, especially in Afghanistan and in, in Iraq. Six lines of operation, 
uh, combat, uh, host nation security forces, essential services. That's where engineers and doctors essentially play a very critical role. That would be the role of engineers without borders right here. Uh, governance, uh, that's the field of uh, political science and economic development, uh, uh, business development. So the idea essentially is uh, kind of in a nutshell, when people in a community, that community could be a neighborhood, have clean water, sanitation, energy, shelter, jobs, they are less likely to take an AK-47 and shoot you, right? In other words, by this kind of integrated approach, uh, you can create essentially um, long-lasting, healthy, safe, and stable communities uh, where you need less essentially military intervention. But it's an integrated approach. That, In fact, the previous field manual uh, was 1974. It was written at the end of Vietnam War, and that's the field manual that was used essentially uh, until recently uh, in Afghanistan and in Iraq. There's really a complete change by force, essentially, of mindset that um, um, is being um, introduced into the military. So U.S. Air Force Academy and University of Colorado, we are working together in training, essentially, uh, civilian engineers we can talk to, military engineers, and military engineers we can talk to, uh, civilian engineers. That's, I think that that's the, it, has to be, it has to be win-win. It has to be a coordinated effort. So Engineers Without Borders, and we'll show you a few projects. Um, we have about uh, eight years later after it was created. We have 12,000 members, 295 chapters, uh, 365 projects in 48 countries. And one of my colleagues, um, John uh, Market, uh, who is here, if you want to stand up, you, uh, he's part of the professional chapter of Engineers Without Borders here in Colorado Springs. Uh, half of our chapters are professional chapters. You can be a professional engineer, you can be a non-engineer as well. In fact, John was asking before if some of you are interested in joining the professional chapter, uh, we need non-engineers as well, because if all problems in the world were technical, we would have solved them by now. Okay, keep that in mind, all right? <laughs> a long, long time ago. So we need non-engineers to keep those engineers out of trouble. That's what, that's what. 365 projects in 48 different countries. Here are some, the core of our work is really this field of appropriate and sustainable technology, small-scale technology, um, really at the grassroots level, at the community level. A community can be a village, it can be a neighborhood in case of military operations. Um, it can be um, in, in, a, in a slum area, it can be in inner city also. So we're talking about um, community. I'm doing some work in the Crow Reservation um, in, uh, in Montana. We have pockets here of, of developing communities, believe me, in the United States. If you look at Pine Ridge Reservation, I remember 80% unemployment, 80% dropout rate in high school, is 70% alcoholism. That's six, seven hours from here. So we don't have to cross the big river to find essentially developing communities. That's why our program is called Engineering for Developing Communities, not Engineering for Developing Countries. Okay? And uh, so that's something to take under consideration. Uh, these are examples of technologies, uh, but that's a biomass digester in, in Rwanda that uses essentially human waste and uh, that creates methane, and that methane is used for the cooking in the kitchens and the prisons there. Um, so, so it's recycled. So, um, but I'll show you some examples. The bottom line is this kind of technology that we are talking about is based on the idea of Schumacher. Some of you may have heard of um, uh, E.F. Schumacher, 1970s. He wrote a book, Small is Beautiful, a great read if you have not read it, still up to date today. But he essentially says that don't, let's not go to a community and with the idea that the white man has all the solutions in the world, um, but instead 
find out what people do and help them do it better. There's a lot of talent at the local people everywhere you go. There are smart people, the brilliant people who have a lot of talent. We know how to break down an, interior, an, an, an engine and put it back on its feet. Um, who know about electronics and so on. They may not have a BS degree or a BA degree or what have you, but they are in fact more talented than some of my colleagues at the University of Colorado, I can tell you that. <laughs> now I've seen some cases where in Nepal where some um, a young graduate student did not know how to pour concrete and yet she had had all the potential classes in, in concrete design, what have you there. She had no clue how to make concrete. And when a local person with no education whatsoever put an entire slab of concrete in front of her, she started crying and questioning the value of her education. See, I'm supposed to be the engineer here. And how come this guy here has no education, knows how to do it? Well, I can, I can, I can talk, talk a lot about, you know, the malaise of engineering education and the malaise of universities in the United States. I can tell you that. I can spend hours on it. It's terrible. We are training essentially people who don't even know much by the time they finish four years of education in engineering school. We're training people who are not competitive at the international level, who don't speak a foreign language, who don't have a clue about the rest of the world. We, I mean, some, in some cases, it's really, really serious. The world has changed. Essentially, graduate education today is the same graduate education we had 27 years ago. In 27 years, the population probably doubled or something like that on the planet. We have global issues, and yet nobody seems to address those global issues. We really have some big issues in front of us. But anyway, the kind of technology that we are facing today that we are interested in with engineers with our borders is what we call that a, techn a, a technology with a human face. Okay, it's at the center here as a person, and we need to be respectful of the dignity of that person, her right, a way of life, a culture. Without that, then we can do a lot of damage. So it's very important that we center our decisions on the community. Here's an example of a technology. It's not very fancy, but it was an inventor from Texas. I thought it's a pretty cool story there. It's called a Bogolite. Buy one, give one, you can go bogolite.com or whatever you there. Uh, it's actually, it has a solar panel built in and you charge it during the day and at night, you can use that light, essentially, right, for um, doing your homework assignment. It comes in two different colors, and that's the quiz for tonight. Why is it that it comes in two different colors, pink and orange? Huh? Any idea? And that's, that's the beauty of the guy there. Anybody can build that. That's, that was built in China, designed by him, invented by him. He has the patent. And he, but he said, well, I'm going to do that little something and I will tell you why in a minute, but I want you to find out why it comes in two different colors. Exactly. For girls and boys. Why? Because when he first started with that color, he would give those lights to men in villages in Africa, and the men, to the women, and the men would steal them. So he say, aha, if there's one thing men all over the world don't like, <laughs> is the pink color. And it is a universal rule. So it was that little something, some men do it, but some men do like it, but um, most men don't like it, okay? All right? But that was that little something that made a big difference. Why is it important? Women are often the targets in refugee camps. 
like during the war with Afghanistan and when there was a lot of refugees, women would try to go to the toilets, to the bathrooms at night, and a man without light, and a man would rape them. Having a flashlight can really save people's life. If I had to change the design of the flashlight, I would put a panic button on it. I have a panic button on my car, which I don't necessarily like, but then it would be really needed. Where someone, a woman is in state of danger, or someone is in state of danger, you push the panic button, and it will not take much. I mean, just a little bit of circuitry, a little bit of current, a little bit of wires there, and then the, the light would start flashing in all sorts of directions. You know exactly that that person is in danger. So here's an example of this small type of technology, but with a huge impact that can really save the life of women anywhere in the world. And in the case of a, a, a boy or a girl doing a homework assignment, a project that we are doing here in Peru, where we have essentially a, a lodge that's in the Amazon River, and we have a hospital here. Some, if someone is sick in that lodge there, uh, it takes about 50 kilometers by boat to come here, and it's expensive. The idea is to use three compu computers here and computer there, so a nurse can talk to a doctor here by internet. Total cost of this project, $15,000. Not $150,000, not $10 million, $15,000, okay? It's high-tech, three transmission towers. The military knows how to use transmission towers. They do that all the time. They can be moved around and so on. That type of technology is called telemedicine. If you have a patient here and a doctor there, it could be teleeducation. If the kids are here and the teacher is there, it could be teletechnology. Someone has a problem with a pump here, and the technician is here. Imagine, it takes you probably one day or two to make that trip here by boat. If you can save that, it's a lot of time and money that is saved. That may go into the education of your kids, more food on the table and whatever. So you have to think the creatively, essentially at the grassroots level, to come up with solutions to those problems. That's why engineering for the developing world is very complex. It's not just technology after technology, but it is essentially, um, it is uh, technology with a human face. You interact with real people. That's, these are solar panels in Rwanda. We're doing some work there. Solar panels that are fitting into a hospital room in that community and into a delivery room in the other community. And this is a project in the West Bank. This is not an Engineers Without Borders project, but this is a project I was exposed to in, uh, during the summer. Um, when I was there. Uh, some young Israelis working with Palestinians on that project. That's an interesting one. This is a community of Bedouins. Uh, the Bedouins live in tents during the summertime, and they live in caves, literally in caves, like cave people in the wintertime. The problem that is they don't have any light. So what the young Israelis did was to build a turbine, a wind turbine, from scratch, total cost of the project was $40,000, and that included the wind turbines and the solar panels. That has completely changed the dynamic of the community. In other words, in that community now they have electricity, the kids can go to school, electricity in a cave, which is kind of interesting to see that, that all of a sudden you are in a cave like the cave people and you have electricity, but people can do some um, work during the day, they can be a co-op during the day, but more importantly, if you go to that community, you will see like um, a huge refrigerator. What you will find in that refrigerator that obviously is fed by the wind turbine, you'll find milk, you'll find cheese, you'll find vaccines. 
things that are really completely changing the health and the economy of the community. Again, for $40,000, this kind of technology is really changing completely the community. Now, that wind turbine, because of the geopolitical, obviously, component of that region, they may be asked to move. Um, again, there's a huge violation of human rights there. Um, but I don't want to go into it because it's fully loaded. Um, but that um, wind turbine there can be essentially removed from the ground, carried over to a different location, and the process can be repeated. Okay. Water is obviously very, very important. Clean water in particular, we're talking about essentially water pumping, storage, distribution. Uh, this is a project in Nepal. Uh, this is a project where we are doing some work. That's University of Colorado at Boulder chapter. We have been in that community for five years. When EWB USA takes a project in a community, we make a commitment of five years minimum. We are likely to be there for about 10 years. The reason we do that is to make sure there's continuity year after year. Things break down. Your car breaks down. My car breaks down. Things break down. We need to be able to fix things and train people locally on how to fix those things. But water is a bad problem there. If you were to drink that water, we are in the Himalaya Mountains, you'll be sick three hours later, big time. Um, sanitation, building of latrines, um, that's another area. Um, we have been working with the school teacher, that's the science teacher, and we told him about a test. It's called the patch test. The patch test, you can buy those little patches there, they're about this big, about for 10 cents. You put some dirty water on top of the patch test, and you have some uh, dark spots, as I'm trying to summarize here. Those dark spots indicate that there's bacteria in the water. It takes about an hour or two for those uh, little black spots to essentially be created. So the, in a few hours, you can identify whether the water is drinkable or not. So what we did was to train the, um, uh, the, the teacher who then trained uh, high school kids to go all over the neighborhood. They all carried with them a patch test. They all conducted it at home, and they, come, they brought back that information. We, an, we had an entire map on the, on the floor there of where the water was contaminated and where it was not. And that was done essentially, I mean, that will cost you five cents, ten, five to ten cents. So in, in, in no time, we had a pretty, pretty good view of the entire uh, health of the community where people had diarrhea, why they had diarrhea. And after that, we could have, we could um, essentially start our intervention in cleaning the water, right? Um, but that's kind of the, I call that the executive summary that we conveyed to our, uh, to the local People, people don't speak English there. I don't speak Nepali. So how do we communicate? You cannot leave behind a 200-page report with a 10-page executive summary saying, you need to do this and that. Nobody will use it. So here's the executive summary. So if a cow poops in the water, and someone poops in the water, and you put water onto the patch test and you see some black spots, don't drink the water. End of executive summary. Okay? <laughs> so imagine... Imagine if the President of the United States would have things, little, uh, uh, you know, posters like that on TV and say, here's the situation, economy, bang, 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 and life would be a little bit easier there, okay? A uh, few more slides. Project in Afghanistan. I'm very proud of that one. Afghanistan is a country with 28 million people. 60% uh, of the people make less than $2 a day, and 40% of the people make less than $1 a day. I've uh, been in Afghanistan since 2003, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. I go there once or twice a year. I'm working with uh, Kabul University, Kabul Polytechnic University. I'm also working on this project, which is a fuel briquette project. Afghanistan has no wood, period. 
no wood. The only wood they get is from Pakistan and it's extremely expensive. The Taliban destroyed everything, the Russians destroyed everything, and there's no wood. So uh, temperature in Kabul, same as in Boulder, or uh, actually here, Colorado Springs. A 6,000 foot uh, elevation city, uh, dry climate, very cold in the wintertime, very warm and uh, dusty in, in the summertime. So how do people stay warm? Well, usually they don't. I mean, many people die, essentially, because they don't have enough wood. I met this gentleman, Sanukaji in Kathmandu in 2007. Um, he introduced me to a technology where you use trash. You use sawdust, paper, leaves, um, uh, rice husk, um, pistachio, nuts, anything you, that burns, essentially, that you crush, and you make somewhat of a powder. And essentially, you mix it up with a little bit of water, you put it into a PVC pipe, leftover PVC pipe up there, you push it into a machine, and poof, comes out a uh, fuel briquette. You let it dry for two days, and that will burn for about 20, 20 minutes. So I brought Sanu Kaji from Kathmandu to Afghanistan. We started a workshop, and in July 2008, we had a workshop running using trash. Kabul is the size of Chicago, population-wise. No wastewater treatment system in Kabul. No sewer systems. And that's after spending, what, a few hundred billion dollars in Afghanistan? Still don't know where all that money went, frankly. I usually, when each time I drive there, or someone drives me around there, I always go into the same potholes that I had in 2003. It's unbelievable. The complete nonsense, the complete lack of management, the complete lack of accountability in essentially international forces in Afghanistan. It has been military buildup, but no nation building at all. I mean, this is, this is really, really, really sad to see. And, you know, obviously you don't hear about it on TV, but, you know, as taxpayer, I'm really concerned about where did that, all that money go. Because when people don't have clean water, when people don't have sanitation, when people don't have wastewater treatment system, when people have electricity every three days, yeah, Bagram Air Force Base is a great place. Oh, yeah, I've been there. 15,000 soldiers there. Oh, yeah, you have electricity on everything. You go outside in the dark, right? And after, that's after spending $100 billion in Afghanistan or something like that over the past eight years, right? Complete, complete nonsense. I'm not talking about, you know, military presence is a must in Afghanistan. It has to be there. Security is part of the equation. You cannot build up a country if you don't have security. You need military presence. Oh, here we go again. Excuse me, sir. It got wild. But anyway, as you see the same slide over and over, what we did in 2008 was we took 20 kids from the streets of Kabul from the prostitution ring. I took 20 boys out of the prostitution ring in Kabul. Kabul has 60,000 children every day who are begging in the streets of Kabul. That includes handicapped as well. Many of them are exploited sexually. And that's, you don't hear about it either. Big time. So what we did with the help of UNICEF, we took 20 kids out of that prostitution wing. We trained them to make those briquettes that I mentioned earlier. In the morning they make briquettes, and in the afternoon they go to school for four hours. All kids in Kabul go for four hours at school. In 2008 we had, uh, that's an example of a boy who was exploited sexually 18 months ago. Boys, not girls. Okay? 
Yeah, I, mean, I, want, I won't tell you all the things I've heard about prostitution in Afghanistan. It's awful. I don't even want to repeat it to you. It's really, you know, talking about violation of human rights there. All of us have to denounce violation of human rights. Every day, every second. Because if we don't, people will violate human rights even more and more and more. And it's going to become the status quo and it's going to become acceptable. It is our responsibility, our obligation. I don't care, you like it or not, we have to denounce violation of human rights. And the UN, if you look, read the Declaration of the Human Rights, what, uh, 61 years ago, right? It was, that's when it came, 61 years ago. Read, get that under your skin, get that under in your DNA, and walk the talk. Because each time a kid like that is exploited, it's all of us who are being essentially hypocritical. That's called a sin of omission. It can come from any church whatsoever. It's called a sin of omission. It, it tears our humanity apart completely. It tears me apart. I don't know if it tears you apart. Do know that that kid essentially makes a living by selling his body for a dollar or two dollars. Come on. Are we so out of touch with reality that we have lost our humanity? We are allowing 29,000 children to die every day for reasons that are purely preventable, and that's perfectly normal. 1,200 children every hour, and that's perfectly normal. Come on. It is our humanity. It is, we, we are being torn apart here. We need to denounce that, and we need to do something about it. You can do it through engineers without borders. You can do it through habitat for humanity. You can do it in any form you want. But you have got to do it. Because if you don't do it, you are part of the problem rather than part of the solution. Sorry. You sit on your butt there and do absolutely nothing and tell me that it's their fault or those people's fault. You are a hypocrite and you are part of the problem rather than part of the solution. You decide. Okay? I'm, I'm very passionate about it. Because I've seen kids blow up in front of me, and that's not a pretty picture. I've seen children die in front of me, and that's not a pretty picture. I've seen children being exploited in front of me, and that's not a pretty picture. So I have to denounce that and tell you, do something about it. Each one of us has to do something about it. And then we also took some handicapped people, and we made them uh, uh, managers. One of them was marketing manager, one of them was accountant, accountant one of them was in charge of collection of materials and so on. The kids were making, are making $50 a month and the, uh, they are making $200 a month when most people in Afghanistan make less than $1 a day. So, um, so now we have 82 kids who are out of that cycle of poverty. Uh, at the end of uh, one year of training, they get a certificate, they have a graduation ceremony. And you know what? They feel proud about themselves. They feel good about themselves. They feel like they are back on their feet, they have a skill, and they know a little bit about how to write and read. They know about the Quran because that's, that's the local culture there. We're not going to deprive them from that. They also know about um, uh, accounting. They know how to balance a, a checkbook and so on. They are productive members of society, and they are less likely to carry an AK-47 and kill essentially soldiers and other civilians. Bridge construction... That's another project. Uh, that's one of my uh, st graduate students. She's part of a, a group called Bridges for Prosperity. Here's a project in Ethiopia. She, she did. Uh, this is not EWB. But look at here. This is bridge was destroyed during World War II. And you have some young entrepreneurs there. 
on both sides. So suppose you're at school here, and your home is here. So in this community, they attach you on a rope there, they swing you to the other side, and bring you to the other side. They do the same thing at night. Okay? That's entrepreneurship, right? You know, look at that. Those are young entrepreneurs. That they make money. They make a profit by doing that. Well, we can do better than that. We can build bridges. And pedestrian bridge, it doesn't have to be a bridge where cars have to go on it. A bridge can be built for, I don't know, $100,000 or $50,000 with the help of the community. And, I mean, this is dangerous. Right? Just want to, you know, emphasize that it is dangerous. So, two more slides. Uh, this is, um, as I mentioned to you, to you, a lot of young people doing nothing in the world. Uh, this is vocational training in Rwanda. Um, I've been working in that, uh, in that community of Moramba. Essentially, what they do is that they take young people between around 12, 14 years of age, and after two to three years, they um, give them a skill. Total cost of the project per year, per child, including room on board, food on sun is $300 per child. For so for three years, make it 1000 For $1,000, essentially, you can take someone who doesn't know how to write and read, put that person on his feet or her feet, give that person a skill, and get that person out of poverty. Let you think about it. Pretty good deal. How come vocational training is so not sexy anywhere in the world? Everywhere I go, say, oh, I don't want my kids to go to vocational training. What's wrong here? My dad was a bricklayer, my grandfather was a bricklayer, my brother was a bricklayer, my nephew is a bricklayer, not a bricklayer, for a reason that my dad told me to stay at school until I could not take it anymore. And I'm still at school, so I never left. But what's wrong about being bricklayer or car mechanics or, or cabinet makers and so on? These are respectable jobs. Believe me, in my class, and I was talking to Mr. Ho before, in my class, about 20 or 30% of them who should be doing this kind of work instead of wasting my time in being poor students in the classroom. <laughs> Frankly, I have about 20% of morons each semester coming to my class. They don't have to be there. They should be doing something more productive. Maybe they have these uh, skills, but somehow someone told them that vocational training is not sexy. If you want to bring 100 million young people out of poverty in North Africa and in, 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 in the Middle East, that's one way of doing it. Empowering essentially the young people from the bottom up. And this is a picture in Ramallah um, in the West Bank. Essentially, these are young Palestinians. 92%, I was told, of the people in that vocational school find a job after two years of training. 92%. The number of engineers who find a job when they graduate from the School of Engineering in, in West Bank, what, 40%? How come there? So what do they do? They all go to the Gulf and essentially they build things for uh, rich people at UAE and in Dubai and so on and so forth. So vocational schools um, essentially is the way to go uh, and education is the way to go. Education of women, equal education to women and, and boys. So slide here. Um, to me, we need a new mindset on this planet. A uh, mindset that is based on, uh, essentially is a quote from Albert Einstein, significant problems we face cannot be solved by the same level of thinking that created them. In other words, the mindset that created the problems that we see today cannot be the same mindset to solve them. We need a new mindset. And I do believe that new mindset is really rooted into compassion. I really believe that the work that needs to be done is, is rooted in the heart and in the mind. It is rooted in compassion. And from that compassion and through leadership, the, the things can be done. 
but it, ha- it comes from here. It has to come from here. And I'm afraid to say that's why the title of my book is Engineering with Soul, because I go to a university in the morning that is out of soul, that is soulless. I listen to politicians who don't have any soul. I listen to some bankers who don't have any soul. Um, I listen to some doctors who don't have any soul. I'm tired of being in, into a soulless type of world. And I think that today we need a compassionate world. We need a world where we talk love is part of, it's not a fancy, it's not a, a girlish type of term, the term love. It's a four-letter word, word that is rarely mentioned on campus. And believe me, there's a lot of four-letter words that are being spoken on campus on how come love is not never mentioned about it. It has to start with compassion. It has to start with actually with sitting down um, essentially with ourselves and identifying our own gift in life. And I want to finish my presentation essentially with four slides of smiles because people don't smile enough. I'm on a campus where I rarely see smiles. I have colleagues where I look like they are constipated from morning to evening every day. I look at politicians who are constipated from morning. Well, you have to be serious, right? Um, I, mean, uh, I mean, come on. We live in a world that has a serious problem of constipation, right? And congestion. Uh, well, um, when people don't smile, they... They are, in my opinion, when people don't smile and are not happy, they are dangerous to the planet. And I think that there are many decisions that are being made by uh, congested, constipated people there. Um, that um, Those people are, we all lose cannonballs. But I want to finish my, pressure, my presentation with smiles. Little girl in Peru there, I mentioned to you telemedicine, teleeducation. She's talking to a teacher there, the first time. She had never seen a computer before. Look at that smile. Kids uh, in, in Nepal, um, that's a, one, of, was one of our early projects we have two students from CU uh, for a total cost of $4,000. That included two rent repair fairs to Kathmandu, broad computers and solar panels uh, on top of the school there, and the kids are looking at the monitor of the computer. This is one of them, actually, uh, Evan Thomas, who has now finished his PhD at the age of 23 and is a NASA uh, engineer. He's already GS-14, to give you an idea. Um, and these are four kids, essentially, from Afghanistan, who have smiles now, who have, who deserve to smile. And again, 18 months ago, those kids were uh, involved in, in the prostitution. So I'm really proud of bringing smiles into the world because after all, that's, all it's all, that's what it's all about. How do we bring compassion? How do we create a better world? Each one of us has a unique gift. I do believe that we are born with a unique gift that God gave us. And part of education is to find that gift. Um, Part of that, um, part of education is to find that mission statement. What is our mission statement on the planet? All organizations have a mission statement. All organizations, we're talking about business organizations, have a vision and a mission. I'm asking you, what's your vision? What's your mission? If you don't know, you better think about it. Better think about it. Sit down and write down over a cup of coffee or a cup of tea, what is your mission statement? What is your vision? What is your unique gift? Because once you find it, the universe is going to work with you, and you better have to fasten your seatbelt. I can tell you that. So with that, I'm going to finish with a quote from, from, um, from Gandhi. He said, you need to be the change that you want to see in the world. Um, and, um, and each one of us can be that uh, agent of change. Thank you. <laughs>